This is Thinking Out Loud, a podcast about current events and Christian hope. Have a hard time putting those two things together? You're not alone. Our timelines may be filled with bad news, but Christ remains on his throne. So what does it mean to live in the light of that truth rather than the shadow of our never-ending dumpster fires? That's the question animating this conversation between Nathan Rittenhouse and Cameron McAllister, two Christian apologists who believe that true hope and realism go hand in hand. So let's think out loud together about current events and Christian hope. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. Thinking Out Loud is a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. And today we want to talk about, oh, what, tarot cards, the lottery, astrology, who knows where this could go. And in order to set that up for us, Cameron has a personal life story he would like to share that I don't actually know this story. I just know that he has one. So I'm sitting here riveted, fascinated to hear what's about to happen. Call me Ishmael. No, I'm just kidding. Well, now you've, you've, you've set it up here for it's it, this. I hope I can sort of deliver here. It's more of an anecdote about how superstitious your average Joe actually is. So years ago, when I was in college, I worked at a grocery store. And one of the most depressing parts of my job was running the lottery machine. I really dreaded it. But you would really hear some because the same people would come in over and over again. If you've ever if you've ever worked in this line before, you'll you'll know the way that this goes. There's certain people who are repeat offenders, and you know they don't have a lot of money to begin with, but they're still spending it every week diligently in the hopes of winning some large amount of cash, and that you know they believe earnestly that this will solve all their problems, but. You find out about all of these superstitions. So I remember this this one person used to come in and routinely he would say something along the lines of, oh, well, I'm going to play. I, I'll need an extra ticket today, Cameron, because I just helped a little old lady out with her groceries. And gosh, I mean, that's got to count for something, right? Karma. Am I right? So I would hear anecdotes like that all the time. And it was bear in mind. So I was I'm a college student at this point. I'm studying philosophy. And so I would say at this point, I'm a cage stage philosophy major. So everything's about thinking analytically and rationally about everything. And I am just absolutely appalled. How irrational. And, you know, I'm at this point, I'm also all over YouTube watching, you know, debate after debate with, you know, you know, different Christian philosophers, quote, crushing atheists and all of that. So, I mean, all that to say, it's not a very flattering portrait of me. But what's happening here is I'm, my eyes are being opened and I'm recognizing most people, most people by far, really do believe that there's something more to life than meets the eye. Not only do they believe it, they intuitively, they sense it. They know that there's more than just this universe. This life is more than the sum of its parts even if it's getting expressed in a way that I think is somewhat naive and actually tragic as well. So that was that was kind of my eye-opening moment to realize that that most people do think that there's more to life than meets the eye. And I think we've just in recent years seen such an uptick in this kind of stuff. So what why do we want to talk about I mean the occasion for talking about tarot cards and astrology and all of that is there's a there's a story right now on NPR, which is really kind of 
sort of a, a a discussion with an author of a book on tarot cards. But really, yeah, just how to how to get started with tarot cards. Although it is a pretty funny article in some ways because, and I'm aware that you know, to Christian listeners, tarot cards. This is scary stuff. It's witchy. It's freaky. I, I, I get that. But there is kind of a funny portion of the article where it's talking about how do I get started? And it goes through these elaborate steps. And basically, the author is saying, read the instructions. <laughs> so it's kind of funny. Yeah. So you want to familiarize yourself with the rules of the deck and yeah, read the instructions before you start playing. Anyway, but that, that was kind of the... So how did the story strike you i mean nathan we talked a while ago now about the uptick in kind of witchcraft we we did an episode on that quite a while ago now but here we are returning to the subject because all of this seems to only be gaining traction i mean how did this how did this strike you as you were looking at that article yeah there, there are a couple of themes um that, that come together here for me at the same time um so one of those is that there's there's a sense in which, I mean, it's, it's a helpful reminder of we do see the world the way that we want to see it so many times. And so you can do that for the, the college philosophy student, right? Who we see the world through this lens because that's the way we want things to be. Christians uniquely have the habit of wanting to see the world through a rational lens, which is, is not bad in and of itself. I think we might be elevating reason beyond its historic usage at some points. Um, but what that does, if we have an incorrect way of the way in which people are engaging the world, if somebody has a totally irrational worldview, logic and reason and worldview training isn't going to be the thing that makes them change their mind. So part of this is recognizing the lenses through which we see things. Part of it is recognizing or helping Christians sense and see that some of the things that you think are convincing arguments aren't that interesting to a lot of people. And I think, you know, when we hang out with some of our friends down in New Orleans and you look at the use of crystals and all sorts of things going on, and not just the fact that there are people that do it, but the percentages of people um, that participate in these, we would, <laughs> I would put them in the category of highly subjective ways of seeking decisions uh, and answers to questions in life. You're like, what in the world is going on here? Because we are as Christians kind of tuned a little more to thinking through this needs to make sense. Combine that with, and, and part of the direction that I want to go, um, or one of the first questions I want to ask you, Cameron, is a couple of months ago, I think it was a New York Times podcast on um, Evangeline Adams, and she was sort of the first rock star astrologer in New York City. She was um, arrested multiple times in her career for telling the future, but the kind of the scandal of the story of her life is the incredibly high-profile people that used her services for business and government. And so you had a very high number of Wall Street traders who would use her astrology services to make market predictions. You also had a high number of presidents, people in the White House as presidents who consulted her on projects or whose spouses were very much thinking that she had an inside line on something. Now, that, the whole thing is just totally terrifying that you think, oh, great. <laughs> we have some high-level financial and government officials who are going to a lady in New York City to figure out what should happen in the world. But the fascinating thing to me with all of this is that she was how often she was so wrong. Now, 
she would give very general. So none of it was hyper specific. And she, I mean, and some of it is from my perspective is so easy to see as chance. Um, or you wouldn't really have to read too deeply to see like, okay, the stock market's going up anyway. How is this news that she's predicting that she also said that stocks could go as high as the heavens right before the great depression. I mean, or the total collapse. So she was so categorically wrong so many times that my question is, is the vast majority of people vast, 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 never win the lottery. I mean, so when you have something or tarot cards, you're, you're looking at it and that one, I think you're reading more of your own neurons interacting than anything else there. When you have Mm -hmm. something that is so consistently wrong, but is every once in a while, just a little bit right. Why do we then, how, how is it that we can ignore all of the other circumstantial evidence around that and focus on just the one time that this turned out to be true out of a thousand or whatever? I mean, so I, to me, it kind of is an interesting, sorry, I'm rabbit trailing here, but you asked how, why this is interesting to me. It's interesting to me in how we selectively choose what information we want to be true and then form a narrative around it and how that's going to benefit us. So anyway, that's, we'll, we'll come back to some of those themes, but just some first thoughts. You definitely have me thinking of that dumb and dumber quote. So you're saying there's a chance. I think there's a couple of different, what part of what makes this complicated is that there are several different factors that are all wrapped up together. So one, one of the interesting features of the NPR article, apart from just the read the instructions part, is that it is, it's intensely subjective. What's being described there is really a ritual that according to this author on tarot is designed to just help you be more intentional about your life and the decisions that you make. And all of her answers are basically, they're so carefully insulated and there's, they're almost, they're, they're so, it's like she's trying to hedge her bets and make sure that you don't do any, any kind of major, you know, fact checking when it comes to the tarot process, it's more about you discovering yourself and it's more about you taking ownership of your decisions. So that's one that seems to me a little bit of a novel reading on it because I think a lot of people do your view this as a means of gaining access to the future and taking control, which is one of the classic motivating factors behind all forms of basically magic and sorcery. It's people trying to gain an unfair advantage or to gain some kind of control. And of course, I think the biblical story that always comes to mind here is King Saul, of course, seeking the the witch of Mm -hmm. Endor to find out about a a military, (laughs) basically, you know, will we, will we win or will we lose? And that reminds me of those, those Wall Street bankers and investors who are seeking that kind of information. So on the one hand, you've got people who earnestly and sincerely want hard facts and information so that they can gain some kind of advantage. Then you got, you have other people who I think are attracted to the novelty of, of the tarot as a practice. I think there are aesthetic motivations there as well. In the article, they talk a lot about, you know, finding a pack that suits you, you know, find images that you like that you, you know, basically line up with your personal taste. 
So that sounds a little bit more like this is a, and I think they use the phrase self-help or self-care in that article. So these are two very different ways of looking at at this practice, by the way. On the one hand, I want to gain, I want to know the future. On the other hand, well, this is kind of a self-care practice that helps me to take ownership of my life and my decisions and to get more philosophical about it. These are all, this is, these are some of the, the, the phrases used in that article, which I find interesting as well. So all of that wrapped um, together makes for a weird sort of moment there. Yeah, well, I'm wondering how representative her perspective is, because this is the subtitle of the book is something like connecting with your higher authority or something. So it does seem right. more inward seeking rather than spiritually connective um, in some way. So I well, wonder if there would be some, I, I, yeah. is, is there some denominationalism within tarot card reading? I'm not sure. Well, you're, but your question there gets to something that I think is really at the heart of this, and that is that most of this stuff is very, I want to say it's cryptic and deliberately esoteric. And I think that's part of its its appeal right now, because we're, we're in a cultural moment, and we've mentioned this a lot of times, where we're saturated with information, but we, and also we're saturated with different options. So we have no shortage of information that's available to us instantly and so many different options for our life. I mean, yeah, Spotify, you don't like Spotify anymore? Now there's Deezer. I don't know if some of you have heard about this. We've been talking about Spotify, but Deezer created by, yes, Rivers Cuomo from the band Weezer. Now Deezer offer, offers you a more ethical and viable option for streaming services. This is just to illustrate that we're just awash with all of these different options. So making good decisions is a source of massive anxiety for so many people because we're perpetually worried that we're missing out or that we're making the wrong decision. And so in that sense, information overload, option overload, magic, or some of these different practices have some real appeal because they are mysterious and they help you. It's a different way of approaching decision-making. Now, I mean, I think I have to say as a Christian, I think it's far from neutral and I actually do think it's dangerous, but it's different and it's mysterious. And I think a lot of people are getting more and more comfortable with the notion that this is a very mysterious world and that it vastly exceeds our full understanding. And I think this is one of the, and this is why this this has a lot of appeal. I mean, it was interesting. I was listening to the other day, Nathan, this is just a, a litmus test for how widespread this is. I was listening to a director whose work I enjoy I'm not going to mention his name, but this director was was in an interview about something he'd done, and he said, yes, and as I was in the process for this, you know, I was just so hung up on this one casting decision, and so, of course, naturally, I went to my tarot reader, and then, and then after that, it became abundantly clear that this actor was the right actor, but it was just, it was so casually said, you know, well, you know, of course, and then as one does, I went to my tarot reader, <laughs> and then also listening I mean, I listen to true crime podcasts. I just, okay, I just do, sorry. But some of them, you will hear this from time to time. I've heard this for years, That, but a lot of police officers and their investigations, they can't, this can't be formally submitted as evidence, but they, they go to mediums. This happens quite a bit when, when more, more than I'm comfortable with, when they're stumped on some particular case. So 
there's a there's a real prevalence here as well, but I think part of it is the appeal there is that it's cryptic, it's mysterious. I mean, Nathan, you said a, a while ago, I can't remember the context, that there's a reason that there aren't systematic theologies, so to speak, of tarot and many, let's face it, a lot of the occult, because it's necessarily shrouded in secrecy. Yeah, well, so I'll tell you a great way to get stuffed in your locker uh, is <laughs> I used to, in high school, go up to people and be like, would you like to have your palm read? And they'd say, sure, and they would stick out their hand, and I had a red Sharpie behind my back, and I'd draw a red slash through their hand. See, then they had a red palm. Um, so, yeah, that, that made me really popular as a palm. So your predictions were really accurate, though. My predictions were extremely accurate and literal. They ended up with a red palm at the end of our interaction. <laughs> and I never got paid at all, believe it or not, for that. But, well, so I guess one of my questions while you're saying that is, I think we want to realize actually how normal all of this is historically and that maybe we're the ones living in the minority perspective. I mean, think about... Uh, anybody who has a missionary friend in a different part of the world would say, you know, one of the main reasons people become Christians is that because Christ protects them from the spells of the local witch doctors. Now, walking down the street in whatever town you live in, in North America, if you're listening to this, that is not the reason people become Christians. But the whole animism and spiritual world is very much alive and well everywhere, all the time, always has been, and there's always been an attempted manipulation of it. You mentioned Paul and the Witch of Endor. I think of Simon, the sorcerer, in the book of Acts, who saw the phenomenal power of the Holy Spirit and then wanted to pay money in order to be able to control that. So I think that as Christians, we fully embrace a spiritual world. In fact, like most religions, we see spirit as more real than matter. Not more real than, but preceding it, for sure. Um, so there's a sense in which some of this is jarring for some people in a way that it really shouldn't be. This actually is the world that Jesus ministered in. I mean, think how casual the New Testament is about Jesus's interactions with the spiritual world. Casting out demons like makes no justification for that being a unique thing at all, and nobody even second-guessed the concept or the idea that that was happening. And that would be true for much of the modern world that we still live in. And so we're a little bit isolated from some of the bigger picture of how humanity has operated in these categories by living in a uh, first world, westernly, materialistic culture. And so some of this is, is shows the permeability. Um, it's, <laughs> I guess what I'm on the borderline of saying here is if you think this is weird, you're the weird one. Um, in some ways. Now, I'm, I'm not saying we can't think it's odd and, and deeply problematic, but it's something you're not taking the world seriously from a biblical perspective if you don't think that this is a key feature of what it means to be human. Can I say that that boldly? Is that right? I think it's dead. I think it's totally right. Yeah, absolutely. And let's go back to college student Cameron McAllister real quickly here, standing behind that lotto counter and being so appalled by how irrational everything was. My anthropology was completely incorrect. And what's ironic there was, and this this will sound a little bit challenging to some of our listeners, so I want to try to carefully unpack it and we can we can we can stay here for a second, Nathan. But the problem, the irony was that in that scenario, 
I actually was the weird one in the way, you know, to go along with what Nathan's been saying, because what I was giving voice to was a thoroughly Western, modern, enlightenment perspective, which basically says that reason is the highest bar of everything, and reason sets the, the standard, and that's, that's basically how the whole world, that's how the world is governed. Reason is the highest, really, the highest order. That actually is not true of human life, though. It's, we're not governed by reason. We are defined, first and foremost, by the heart. So human beings are defined by their will and desire. That is the, that's at the core of what a person is. That's the biblical perspective. That's the biblical anthropology. That's also the secret to human action. And so what I was seeing was I was getting a view of the human heart and the human heart in action, just in the course of everyday affairs. And what gets you out of bed in the morning is not an idea, it's not a rational concept, it's not a worldview, as important as all of those are, it is a vision, it is a poem, it is a story, it is a narrative, and it's a dream, and it's a desire. And for many of these people, they saw the lottery as a literal ticket out of their current circumstances. And so they were, in other words, they were captivated by a vision. And they also understood correctly, in a way that I did not, that the world is an amazing place, a magical place where there is so much more than meets the eye. And there are unseen powers at work. Now, all of that is true. And down the ages, human beings have never lost that assumption, that key assumption. And now, actually, there's quite a bit of current scholarship that's looking at this. There are books like We Were Never Disenchanted. All of them are, are basically saying, look, yeah, modernization, industrialization, all of these different processes have happened. We have amazing technology and machines, but none of that has changed the basic motivations of human beings and the ways in which they see the world as more than the sum of its parts. So I think this was an instructive moment for me because it was helping to pull me out of what I think was basically just immaturity and a naive vision and help help me get back in touch with with reality and to and to see things as they actually are and also more importantly to understand what makes human beings actually tick that's why a lot of times when I'm so if if I'm speaking when I'm speaking for instance on on the book that I wrote faith that lasts which has to do with faith in a Christian household and helping to instruct our children. Part of what I often hear from parents is that my kid, my kids know everything they need to know. They have had so much training. I've sent them to all the right camps. They've read the right books. They've listened to the right podcasts, but they're still not living for Christ. And what I try to always say is just basically the, yeah, but that's because their heart has been captured by something else. They may, you can know all sorts of stuff, but if you want something else, the knowledge often will make little difference. You know, we, this is true in our diets. <laughs> this is true with so many of the tasks that we know that we need to get done. This is tax season. You, you well, know, actually, you've got the, some items that you por- fill the, out. Yeah, the porn industry f- thrives off of this, right? One hundred percent. That your desires override what people. Yeah, that's what this is. And so if you have a porn addiction, you can't snicker at somebody who uses tarot cards to try to control the future because you're actuating your desires over your reason. It's the exact same thing. So I think in like some 
modern sense, I, I kind of am okay. I mean, I haven't read the books you're talking about there, but there is a sense in which we, we haven't become disenchanted. We've just dressed up yep. our chaos in ways that we're comfortable with. I could, and oh, absolutely. I don't think not not a bit have we become disenchanted. No one, no matter, and n- n- neither did that that Cameron back then either. <laughs> I just was able to fool myself about it. <laughs> yeah. So Cameron, I I gave a talk once at a well-known school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, t- titled "Non-Physical Causation," and. The way that this plays into this is like, okay, picture this in your mind. You're, I don't know, sitting at your table right now and you can see a glass of water on the other side of the table. Can you move that glass of water without any type of physical interaction with it? So not bumping the table, not throwing something at it. Can you just by thinking about it, interact with material at a distance and have an actual effect on it without physical interaction? So what I said is that the heart of the talk is that magic is an attempt to do that. Um, or, I mean, on most of that, and I'm not talking, when I'm saying magic, I'm not talking about like illusions. Um, the Genuine magic. You know, the fun stuff at the carnival. Yeah, I'm talking about, but I don't think any of that happens that's non-mediated through a spiritual reality. So I think there are senses in which we can have an impact on something physical at a distance, but that's never done without a spiritual medium of some sort. Now, if you think I'm going off the deep end right now, what I'm talking about is prayer. I'm talking about what is it about you as a physical and spiritual being that affects actual change in the physical world based off of the things that you ask God to intercede for on your behalf we're talking about the interaction of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. in our lives with the physical universe around us. That's what's happening when you pray. The same thing is happening on a different scale when people try to manipulate reality through different spirits. And oftentimes, uh, I bet I bet you know somebody who's, inv- and I'm saying this broadly to those of you listening, if you asked around enough, who's played around with something enough until it totally terrified them, um, I know my brother's talking about in college people who were killing rabbits with spells and stuff and then just totally got freaked out by it. Um, all kinds of crazy stories with Ouija boards and all sorts of things where people, it suddenly clicked for them that we're not playing a game here. We're participating in something bigger than ourselves and we don't have control over it. And so that's actually true when we're praying as well. We don't have control over it. And that's one of the key distinctions between a Christian interaction with the spiritual and otherwise, is we're not trying to control God. Now, I think there are false ways and false motivations for praying in which effectively that's what we're trying to do. Oh, it's silly to think this guy helped this little old lady with her groceries and now he's going to win the lottery. Mm. Well, Lord, I did this for you yep. and now you should answer my prayer is effectively pretty much the exact same thing if you're trying to manipulate a spiritual reality based off of your own behavior. Yep. So there's some high degrees of similarity here with totally different underlying uh, factors and premises to it. Um, anyway, what do I need to clarify there, Cameron, so I'm not committing heresy? No, I mean, well, I think what you're doing is you're challenging us to take ownership of what it is we actually believe about the spiritual world. And I think for many people, prayer, if we're not careful, we get we'll get sucked into a cultural mindset that basically makes of prayer something quite similar to what that article did of tarot. Namely, 
it's just kind of a helpful mental exercise for you so that you can make better decisions and think more holistically about your life and take proper ownership rather than, no, you're making contact with the living God. And this can actually have a changing effect on the world as you know it. Now, ideally speaking, you're doing this yeah. in a legitimate so fashion. One, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so one of the most complimentary insults I've ever received in my life was there was an older gentleman that I worked with who liked to push and see how far we would go on spiritual conversations. And he was very opposed to anything Christian. And so he would say to me things like, Nathan, he said, I think you're such a smart young man and your brain is so mysterious that when you pray, you're basically just hearing the basically the static of your own mind speaking back to you what you want to hear in that. Um, is of saying, no, this is this is really coming from you. You're not so it's like saying you're so smart that your brain can make up stuff for it to say to itself. I'm like, I'm not mm -hmm. really sure that that's mm -hmm. going anywhere. So it's kind of a backhanded you're schizophrenic, smack. Nathan. But yeah, basically. So, but I mean that that idea there in its in its highest cynical form is is that's what's happening. But I think when you're talking about kind of the culture of your home and the way that we think about prayer, is the thing that we do collectively on Sunday morning, is that just for our own psychological benefit in order to try to establish some sort of point of reference of normalcy as a community, or are we, as you use the phrase, actually making contact? And those are two very, very different things, but I think there is a lot of prayer masquerading as the former and not the latter. Yeah, I mean, and I think this is why the primary way that the Lord will communicate with you and talk to you will be through his word. And this is also why we have prayers laid out for us in scripture as well. We have the Lord's prayer, but we also have the Psalms. And so that can be an instructive exercise. But yeah, we also have certain habits that we can we can work on, which is there I mean, there does seem to be a general sense in which if if <laughs> if wishful thinking is motivating what we, we what we think is 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 an answer from God, I think we have great reason to be cautious and to also seek counsel and wisdom from others. That's why Again, church is so important because we're doing a lot of this in our own lives, yes, but we're also doing this corporately. And that's that's important because it adds accountability. But when we're looking through scripture and looking at the actual words of our Lord, this is another way. And see, this is where I want to push back on what I think is a deep cultural prejudice here. So I, I said earlier that mystery is a key part, I think mystery is a key part of the appeal behind a lot of this resurgence, or maybe maybe we don't want to call it a resurgence, maybe we, we just want to call it, you know, the, the occult becoming sort of more popular in the spotlight again, because the, I don't think that, well, I think it was in Evangeline Adams time where it became legal to start doing it. So for a while, we did yeah. have laws that, I mean, actually, even during Saul's time, it was too. So there are ebbs and flows of it's public face because of other factors too. Yeah, so it's got a it's got a bit more of a public face right now. So mystery being a key appeal there. I think a lot of people misunderstand mystery 
Because when it comes to, so everything that I just said, I think a lot of, some people might think, oh, great, yeah. And all of the magical stuff that you were just mentioning, you know, surrounding tarot and mediums and all of that, you just killed it all by saying the Bible and the word of God and, you know, trying to push our desires out of the way so they don't lead everything. But mystery, biblically speaking, doesn't mean that some, it doesn't mean something remains in the shadows and remains inscrutable beyond our reach. It doesn't mean that you can't have rules. It doesn't mean that you can't have actual dogma. That's a word that's really, that's a, that's a really bad word here. It means that what we're talking about exceeds your ability to fully comprehend it. In the same way that when we talk about Jesus as fully God and fully man, we, I mean, there are amazing expositions of that colossal truth. There are, are, we can read about it in scripture. There are wonderful books on it. There are research journals on it, but we will never fully comprehend it. We'll never wrap our minds around it. We serve an infinite God. And so having truth guiding our, the process and having rules in place and having set protocol in place does not preclude mystery. What it does is it liberates us and frees us from the tyranny of our own subjectivity. And that's what, because so many of these other pursuits, the reason I think another, I mean, there's mystery, but the other big appeal is that you can be pretty non-committal with it. You don't have to surrender the entirety of your life. You can, you can be open-ended. Now, again, let me just be clear here. I think you're playing with fire. And Nathan, you mentioned some of the creepy stories that happen. We've got, I actually, my dad and I have one that, that happened to my dad when he was young, before he was a believer, and we actually put it in the book. And it is creepy. So it's a, this is not neutral stuff, but it reminds me of that one passage in, I think it's, I believe it's in C.S. Lewis's book, Miracles, where he talks about how so much of this, this stuff, if you look at life, you know, if you look at the spiritual world as some sort of anonymous life force or, you know, think about that altar to the unknown God from Act 17. That's easy because it kind of takes you off the hook. I mean, you can still keep, your options are still open. You're still, a, you're, you're, a, you're freed to not be too tied down. But if we're talking about Jesus Christ, this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this very specific living God who has a definitive claim on your life, if he's real and if this is true, then, my goodness, there's a whole lot more required of you. And But it's every bit as mysterious and powerful. It just takes your wishes, you know, your, your kind of your own little subjective whims and fancies out of the front seat. So I don't know if I've helped or if yeah, I've just murked so, murk it up to everything. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's good. I, I want to say something quickly about how we as Christians should think about this. And fear is actually not the right response. Um, and an illustration that I've used in this category was when I was much younger, and this was my brothers and I um, messing with the maternal instincts of a cow. But what we would do, <laughs> and you'll laugh at this, Cameron, but when a cow is just given birth, they're pretty protective of their young. And we would try to run and touch the newborn calf and get back over the gate before the mother stomped us into oblivion, right? Oh, man. Which, I mean, you are kind of... <laughs> It's, it's a risk though, but you're, you know, you're little boys, you're egging each other on. Um, and so the thing was, is that running, jumping off the gate and running and touching a calf, the calf was not a threat at all. 
It was the 1,200 pounds behind the calf <laughs> glaring at you that was the threat. And I think as a Christian, I operate in the same thing. Satan's not worried about you. The spiritual world is not concerned with you. It's what's behind you looking over your shoulder that is mm-hmm. that gives you your protection. And so to be in Christ and to be in step with the Holy Spirit does give us a real spiritual protection. And so I'm not saying go poke the calf um, just to make it mad, but we don't need to live in a state of fear as Christians that there's this um, mystical, mysterious world out there that somebody's going to cast a spell on us and all this. Like that's not the that's not the appropriate response. If you are in Christ, you've got nothing to worry about there. What that also means, though, is that if we're not characterized by fear, we can respond to this. I think in some very fascinating ways of okay, say somebody you know really is into tarot cards or having their palms read or whatever it is, or astrology horoscopes, planting by the signs, whatever. It's we we as Christians are actors and characters in a cosmic spiritual reality. It's it's part of the world that we inhabit. And so it's not that we don't think that those things are um untrue, it's that we think they're sad. Because they're a grappling for a hope that can't be fulfilled through that particular format or system. And so when we look at it, we see the um, the despair of the loss that comes from repeatedly buying lottery tickets, hoping to make it big. Um, but that's true in the spiritual world as well, as people are gra- grasping for some sort of something to give them hope, some sort of reference point outside of themselves to give them continuity or to help them make sense of the world. Uh, those are real longings of the human heart. That's what we've been talking about. And Christ actually speaks to that and makes more sense. The gospel makes more sense when you can see the world through this lens than if you're trying to do this just through a pure, dry, rational, Mm -hmm. disconnected from the common experiences of humanity way. So we're challenging you here to be more careful in some sense, but to be more understanding and see there to be more opportunities than you might have previously thought for some interesting conversation. You're saying, oh, great, you believe in, in non-physical causation? Tell me about that. What are your experiences been? Um, because I think you'll find that you do have the resources from a proper biblical anthropology, as Cameron mentioned, to have some meaningful conversations with people who are interested in the spiritual world. Because that's where you live in focus as a Christian. Uh, not to the exclusion of the material, but it's a big part of what it means to be human. And so there's a richness and a fullness there that being Christian brings into this entire conversation that we can do uh, lovingly, not judgmentally, compassionately, and not fearfully in a way that does um, raise the question for many others of, are there stable sources of hope and are there safe spiritual interactions in the crazy cosmos in which we live? Well, anyway, there's the thought for the day. But you've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book one of our speakers or make a donation. Visit thinkingoutloudtogether.com. And lastly, if you like our podcast, spread the word. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating. It really does help.